0: Welcome to Episode 8, How to End a Biography, The Case of Sylvia Plath. One of the frustrations of writing biography is the way it is read uh, and the way reviewers often don't seem to think very much about the choices that have to be made. They treat The subject's life as content, a story to be told, which of course it is, but how that story is told and how that story ends, they don't pay much attention to that. Uh, And I wanted to go through the Plath biographies just to point out some of the different ways in which the story can be ended. Obviously, it ends with the life, and yet what happens after that? Is there an afterward? Is there a summing up? What happens? Or do you just end it very dramatically in one last paragraph? Here's the first uh, full Plath biography by Edward Butcher, published in 1976. Last paragraph. At about 6 a.m., according to Al Alvarez's memoir, Sylvia went up to the children's room and left a plate of bread and butter and two mugs of milk. Next, she returned to the kitchen, and sealed the door and windows with tea towels and cloths to guard carefully against the possibility of any gas reaching the sleeping children. Finally, she turned on all the taps, knelt down as if to say her prayers, and laid her head in the oven. When the nurse arrived later in the morning and was finally able to get in with the assistance of some workmen, she found Sylvia lying on the floor of the kitchen, with her head resting on the oven. Miss Norris desperately applied artificial respiration until the ambulance arrived, but the St. Pancras University College Hospitals would list Sylvia Plath Hughes as dead on arrival. And that's how his biography ends. There is an epilogue, there is a kind of summing up and reflection on her, in a sense, afterlife. It's pretty much a statement of fact, Uh, The biographers, in a sense, inventiveness comes in, of course, in phrases like when she kneels down as if in prayer. We don't know. We don't know what she was thinking, whether she was in a prayerful mood at all. Not sure what to make of that. Not something I would do in a biography. Uh, The next biography that came out was by Linda Wagner-Martin in 1987. Um, Here's how she ends her biography. Early on the morning of February 11th, 1963, Sylvia Plath knelt beside the open oven in the second floor kitchen of her primrose hill flat and turned on the gas. She had left cups of milk beside the children's beds. She had put tape around the doors and shoved towels under them to protect the children from escaping fumes. She had taken a quantity of sleeping pills and had left a note asking that her doctor be called. The nurse, who was to arrive early around 9.30 a.m., came around 9.30 a.m. Sylvia was dead. The police were called, as was Dr. Horder, that was Plas, G.P., At 10 a.m., Catherine Frankfurt arrived to babysit. Ted came soon after. Then there is a short couple sentences. On February 15, an inquest was held. The following day, the death of Sylvia Plath Hughes was ruled a suicide. One of the things I'd say about this ending paragraph is it gives you, uh, more than Butcher does, sort of a sense of place, of the physical surroundings, the second floor kitchen, and so on. Uh, And even maybe a stronger sense of how meticulous Plath was uh, in those last moments of her life. But no commentary about, in a sense, what she's intending by that final act. Uh, Then we come to Anne Stevenson in um, 1989. I have to confess to you, this is a biography I don't care for very much. Uh, it was written uh, under the, what can I call it? The hammer of Owen Hughes, Ted's sisters, who kept such a strong control over the state. Uh, estate. And uh, Stevenson it, at one point was sort of implying it was, it was written by both of them. Uh, and there's just a note of grievance uh, about the, the biography that just, Uh, to me, is very distasteful. Um, Here's her last uh, paragraph, actually the last couple paragraphs. The peculiarities of her work have spawned countless theories and controversies. Many revere her for reasons that have little to do with reality. I can only hope that this book will go some way to unravel the mystery and make her great qualities recognizable for what they really are. I have to stop already. Really, you know, this use of word of what's real, as if she knows what's real and these other people have just invented Sylvia Plath. Well, we all invent Sylvia Plath in some sense by writing narratives. Her This tone of superiority just, well, it just makes me angry. And then she quotes Owen Hughes. As Owen Hughes has written, Sylvia may be a poet modi, but she is an achieved mature one. Her work is hermetic, even on ethical grounds questionable, but as art, it is unassailable. That's Owen's opinion that has to be put in at the end of the biography. Um, Stevenson goes on to say, she herself has become a victim of her myth's huge aggrandization Her body not even suffered to lie in peace under its yellow rose in the Hepston Stahl churchyard. The other thing about Stevenson is, is she writes like she's above all this, as if by writing a biography, she isn't one of the people at the graveside, whether she physically goes there or not. What gives here? And then Stevenson says, When I had all but finished the book, I went with a friend to visit her grave, All we encountered was a pathetic patch of garden, a wind-beaten rose, and a chip of flat rock with Sylvia Plath inscribed on it in black paint. The vandals who had made the temporary removal of her tombstone necessary were women for whom the legacy of Sylvia Plath was no more than a simplified feminist ideology. How does she know that? That may be true for some people who deface the stone, it may not be true for others. And again, the this sort of, I don't know, what, what's the word? The gall of such language just strikes me as inappropriate. The last sentence of the book is, The inscription from the Bhagavad Gita on her vanished stone is still appropriate. Even amidst fierce flames, the golden lotus can be planted. And you've got appendices, basically uh, by people who didn't like her. Well, enough of Ann Stevenson. Uh, In 1991, Paul Alexander published a biography of Sylvia Plath. Um, And uh, it's a valuable book uh, in terms of its documentation, of some of the new things he found out. There is speculative material in it, too, that people don't like. Well, enough said about that. Let's look at his last paragraph. Over the years, Plath's family and friends would try to understand her death. Sylvia was doomed, Wilbury Crockett remembered. That was her teacher in high school. I don't want to say she had a death wish. What I'm saying is I was not surprised by the way her life ended. I grieved, but I was not shocked. Gloria Steinem placed Plath in social context. Uh, he's quoting Steinem. Sylvia Plath was an early prophet who described a societal problem by describing her own suffering, who described the problem without knowing why. And when the why finally came along, she became even more tragic. That's Steinem's comment. Al Alvarez openly acknowledged his and others' guilt. And now he's quoting Alvarez. When I look back on her life, it fills me with shame about how badly everyone behaved towards her near the end, myself included. That's Alvarez. Aurelia Plath isolated her daughter's most basic character defect. This is Aurelia. Sylvia's tragic flaw lay in her own very weak ego strength. That's her mother's point. And Mary Beth Little summed up the pathos of Plath's death. Quote, Her death was tragic, but her life was a triumph. How many of us have recovered from the almost perfectly natural nervous breakdown of the sensitive scholarly student? Much more important, how many of us have left poems that will live? And children who live, yes, in shadow, but yes, in the light of a light undimmed. Uh, So he ends by quoting all these other people. Valuable uh, in sort of presenting many different perspectives on the end of her life. But for me, anyway, for the kind of biographer I am, uh, there's not enough of a shaping of the story in terms of uh, the biographer's own own perspective. Here's um, Ronald Heyman in uh, 1991, same year as uh, Paul Alexander's biography came out. Last couple paragraphs, in February 1963, it seems likely she didn't decide until the afternoon of Sunday the 10th that she'd do it during the night. During her four days with the Beckers, that's Jillian Becker, her friend, and her husband, uh, uh, Jerry Becker, their assumption was that she'd stay over Sunday night, that's February 10th, 1963, returning in time to meet the nurse when she arrived on Monday morning, February 11th. It's impossible to be certain when she made up her mind to return to the Maisonette early on Sunday evening. We can't even be sure that she knew then she was going to kill herself that night. Throughout the conversation with Jerry Becker, she was lucid and was talking about the future. And when Dr. Horner called, he was confident that she'd be all right until the morning. But by the time she saw Trevor Thomas, that was the downstairs tenant, she no longer seemed self-possessed. And maybe that nothing specific happened to alter her state of mind. It's possible that no one called to see her, that she took no more pills, that the balance was so precarious that without any stimulus, the seesaw tilted against her by the morning she was dead. It's uh interesting uh, analysis. It opens her life up to contingency, uh, you know, Uh, a teeter-totter, up and down. Um, It's an interesting way uh, for the biographer not to overstep what uh, he or she knows. He's got one more paragraph. In the 1959 story, The Daughters of Blossom Street, the boy who falls down a flight of stairs had been an unheroic stammerer with a bad complexion, but death had crowned him with a martyr's halo. Without wanting a halo, Sylvia may have wanted to create a legend centered on poems which had, as she knew, the stuff of greatness in them. Unlike her Lady Lazarus, she wouldn't find it easy enough to do it and stay put. Sylvia Plath wouldn't survive the suicide, but Sylvia Plath, he puts the name in quotation marks, would. So there's the, anyway, the indication, which I think is perfectly uh, justifiable of her desire to turn herself into a myth. Uh, of course, that appeals to me. I'm a biographer who wrote a biographer, biography of her entitled American Isis. Here's uh, Diane Middlebrook from Her Husband. This is 2003 about Hughes and Plath uh, and their, the way they influenced each other. She has a very short paragraph, one last paragraph. This is how she returns to consciousness in her last apparition, as the life of words that quicken into the life of the hearer or the reader. Under Hughes's signature, Plath's words to Hughes become his words to us. Appropriately, this book is speaking with Plathian impatience. Yet you recognize what Hughes wants from you—the only thing the living can give the magical dead: empathic but pitiless attention. I love those last two words, "pitiless attention." Um, that's what the biographer has to do, in a way: give pitiless attention—attention, not look away. In life, we, we often do look away. It's too painful or we don't want to talk about it or we don't want to address the person with depression. But as a biographer, you have to. Now here's what I did in American ISIS. This was published in, 19, in 2013, um, the 50th anniversary of her death. I'll read to you just the last two paragraphs. It was now 11 February and Sylvia Plath prepared to die. She left food and drink for her children in their room and opened a window. In the hallway, she attached a note with Dr. Horder's name and number to the baby carriage. She sealed the kitchen as best she could with tape, towels, and cloths. She turned on the gas and thrust her head as far as she could into the oven. A hired nurse, Arriving around 9.30 a.m. to begin her day, heard the children crying at the window and called on a workman to break into the flat. They found Sylvia Plath lying on the kitchen floor with her head in the oven. It was far too late to revive her. Now here's the last paragraph. It may seem perverse or at the very least paradoxical. To say that by her death, Sylvia Plath finally found a way to recover herself. By all accounts, including her own, she had been writing the poetry that would make her reputation. That she knew that no human being could sustain such a peak of perfection and perform all the normal functions of existence in the kitchen of life, as Martha Gellhorn used to call day-to-day existence. When Sylvia Plath put an end to herself, she had reached one of those crisis points, exhilarated and exhausted by all she had accomplished and by all she had left undone. This state of beatitude, this descent into the lower depths, is Shakespearean in its sublimity and tragedy and seems worthy of what Menenius says of Coriolanus, who had a nature too noble for this world. One of the things that Sylvia Plath, one of the terms that Sylvia Plath applied to herself was manic depressive. Uh, And I think the, the poems reflect often this up and down swing of her emotions and the manic depressive quality of her sensibility. And that's what I was trying to capture in the last paragraph. Well after writing that, I couldn't repeat myself in the last days of Sylvia Plath. I was looking especially at the last um, seven months of her life, but i was I was writing a not a a chronological biographical narrative, although I roughly follow chronology in the book. I was really going back and forth considering the way our thoughts about her, Ted Hughes's thoughts about her, others' thoughts about her, have all factored into what we consider to be the last days of Sylvia Plath and the significance of her death. So toward the end of the last days of Sylvia Plath, I deal, for example, with uh, Ted Hughes's book, Birthday Letters. Uh, And I end my discussion of birthday letters with um, a discussion, or a reference anyway, to one of his poems within Birthday Letters, A Picture of Otto, that is of Plath's father. In A Picture of Otto, Hughes cries to Plath. I was a whole myth too late to replace you. I say, but that is not true. Or at least that is not the whole story. What is odd about birthday letters is the absence of Sylvia Plath's Ted Hughes, the one she thought of as a god. Why is the titan described in her letters, poems, and journals absent from birthday letters? I'm afraid I have no answer. I think the only way Ted Hughes might have resolved his confusion, he would prefer to call it mystery, is if he had taken on T.S. Eliot's impersonality theory and destroyed it once and for all. I deal in this last chapter with... Um, Hughes's attacks on biography and literary criticism, too, for that matter. And what a literary critic, good literary critic he could be and how he resisted that impulse. He was capable of doing just that, that is, a, dealing with Sylvia's personality as well as her poetry, precisely because he had the mind of a great critic and a great poet that he chose not to descend from Parnassus even as the Lilliputian biographers chipped away at the Colossus, may have seemed noble, but like Coriolanus, he might have been better off showing all his wounds to the populace. You know, he makes a great deal about the invasion of his privacy. I go on in the last short paragraph. Ted Hughes was never able to come to terms with the last days of Sylvia Plath. Only biography through the cumulative and incremental narratives of generations, can come anywhere near to explaining her protean life and death. Now I have a couple couple more chapters in The Last Days of Sylvia Plath dealing with uh, the novel Poison by Susan Fromberg Schaefer, and also a meeting between um, Frida Hughes and Emily Van Dyne, a Plath scholar. Uh, and it's like three endings, three ways of thinking about the uh, the ending of Plath's life and how difficult uh, Hughes has made it and how Frida has kind of carried on that tradition. I say the very, at the very end of the book, Emily, that's the Plath scholar, Emily Van Dyne and Frida had a short talk. This was at by accident at Sylvia Plath's graveside. And Emily Van Dyne gives a full recording of this conversation in an article in LitHub. But I go on to say, what matters to me is that they talked at all, and how halting such an encounter would have to be, except that I can think of many ways in which Ted Hughes could have made such meetings not so unnatural. Right now, I'm thinking about how Patrick Bronte opened up his parsonage to Elizabeth Gaskill. Thank you.